is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Hurricane Ian slowly creeping up toward Florida and could pack a massive punch. It might hit the Tampa area as a Category 4 storm as early as Wednesday. Hundreds of thousands of people could face mandatory evacuation orders. Officials are already saying if you're told to leave and don't, they will not come and save you. We'll go in-depth into what to expect from Ian. The January 6th committee is back in action this week. We'll tell you what it plans to tell the public before a report comes out ahead of the November elections. And we look into whether Governor Newsom had a good reason to veto a bill to make kindergarten mandatory in California. A study conducted by LinkedIn being criticized because it may have cost people job opportunities without them really knowing it. New survey shows people want EVs with long ranges, but is it practical for the car makers to make those? Italy getting its first far-right government since the Second World War. We'll go in-depth into what could happen there, how it could affect the rest of Europe and the U.S., and the voice of Darth Vader. You know the man behind it, James Earl Jones. He says he's done. He's retiring as Darth Vader. So who's going to replace him? It's going to be him in a way. So we'll explain that one. We start, though, with Hurricane Ian. With us is Weather Channel meteorologist Mark Thibodeau. He's been tracking Ian's movements. Mark, thanks for being with us. This is a dangerous storm, and Florida is possibly in for a rough time of it, isn't it? Absolutely, Charles. You know, the thing is, we were watching the storm over the weekend. didn't look very impressive at first, but now what's happening is it's getting into the Northwest Caribbean, where the conditions are ideal in terms of the ocean water temperatures. Through a deep layer, we have temps that are close to 90 degrees in the water temp. And the upper level conditions, we got to have it nice and quiet in the upper atmosphere, a ridge of high pressure upstairs. And what that basically does is once these storms develop, it allows them to really breathe and grow and expand. And that's kind of what we're seeing now. So the official track is taking this up across the western side of Cuba by 8 a.m. Tuesday, strengthening to a major hurricane. That's 111 plus category three and then possibly becoming a category four hurricane when it gets into the eastern Gulf once it goes by the Keys. And then the center of it on the official forecast track right now gets very close to Tampa by the time we get to 8 p.m. Wednesday evening. Even if we don't get a direct landfall, I still think we could get hurricane conditions in Tampa and a storm surge as well, say from Tampa down to places like maybe Punta Gorda, which was Punta Gorda back in 2004 was hit so hard by Hurricane Charlie. This is a different system from Charlie. It's a bigger system in terms of size. It's about It could be about as strong as Charlie was. It's going to impact a larger area. Then it moves north from there by 8 a.m. Friday, possibly a landfall across the Florida Big Bend area, maybe uh, north of Tarpoon Springs and up into uh, maybe Lake City, Florida, potentially through the day Friday. And the problem here is at this point it's going to be slowing down, so we could have some prolonged surge impacts, possibly up across uh, Apalachicola Bay, and some heavy rain and wind prolonged impacts across north and central Florida. After that, it looks like over the weekend it's going to continue to weaken a little bit, go up into maybe southern Georgia, say around Augusta perhaps at some point midday Saturday as an area of low pressure back down to a tropical depression, but still with plenty of rain, some gusty winds and flooding. So I don't like the fact that it's slowing down as we get to the end of the week because that's going to prolong the surge, wind, and rain potential here across north and central Florida. When you guys do this modeling, what actually happens? Do you take a few and then combine it and kind of get that track? And this one is obviously not going where we wanted it when we think, you know, Tampa there right in the middle. 
So what happens is we look at a few different models uh, with these hurricanes. We look at what's called the GFS, that's the America model. We look at the European model, which typically is uh, fairly reliable for these tropical systems. It's also good with winter storms, the European model. There's a couple other ones called the CMC, the HWRF model, HWRF. Uh, those are different uh, models that look at these tropical systems. The GFS and the European are the ones that are used the most. And then within those two models that are used, the GFS and the European, there's what they call ensembles. Those are a bunch of different smaller micro models that are spun off from the same models, different versions of the GFS, different versions of the European model. And we sort of look at what all those different ensembles say. That's an average of different algorithms over a whole bunch of different numbers that are plucked out with this. And so we try to figure out from all that exactly where it's going, where are the biggest convergences of these different models happening. And we've seen some interesting stuff happen with this. First, it was tracking a little further east on all the different models. Then it was wobbling to the west. And then late this weekend and now today, it's kind of wobbling back to the east a little bit, sort of where the original thinking was. The official center still has it staying just offshore, Tampa Bay. But I got to tell you, a nudge 10 miles east, a nudge 10 miles west could make all the difference. But I think the impacts are going to be similar for Tampa. I just hope we don't actually get the eye wall onto Tampa Bay because that would mean very destructive winds, 90, 100 miles an hour with uh, the impacts very severe there. So that's kind of what we look at. It's, it's, uh, it's, there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, trying to get that best forecast, but that's what we think is going to happen right now. Wasn't it only a few weeks ago when weather people were sort of uh, intrigued by the fact that we weren't getting a lot of hurricanes, and now all of a sudden we seem to be getting them? You know, there was, you know, the season started out, yeah, the forecast, as you know, was above average uh, for the season. I think what happened is the conditions were sort of there, but we had, we started off with something called the Saharan air layer, that's dry air that comes off Africa, and that dry air tends to inhibit updrafts, downdrafts, and really tends to take the moisture out of some of these storms as they try to form over the tropical Atlantic. So that was the first thing that sort of put the damper on the the initial, the first several weeks of the season. And then we were looking at that going away, and we said to ourselves, well, it's pretty ideal now, so what could still be holding it up? And then we noticed that there was too much dry air trapped over the tropics, over the Caribbean and over the... Uh, tropical Atlantic, you'd look at a satellite and a radar and it was just clear as a bell and the only thing stopping it was the dry air that somehow wound up in that area. We had the water temperatures, you know, we had a frontal zone nearby to sort of get things going, but we just we just had too much dry air. Well, now the dry air is gone. We still have those ideal upper level conditions. We still have those very warm water temperatures. So now the switch has been turned on. And now as we uh, look at the back half of the season, things are getting active. You know, it's important to note really that the official peak of the hurricane season, climatologically, is usually September 10th. But at that point, you're only through about 30 to 40 percent of the entire season. You know, the season doesn't end the Atlantic and the Gulf officially till November 30th. So we knew that the back half of this could be very active, and that's coming to fruition a little bit. We're starting to see things like this happening with Ian, and we have another system further out that we're taking a look at that may or may not be a problem down the road. So... It's not over yet, but things are definitely on the more active side now, for sure. Weather Channel meteorologist Mark Thibodeau there. Mark, thanks. Still to come, LinkedIn did a study. Try to make its platform better for users. May have cost some of the users better career opportunities. We'll talk about that. And the voice of Darth Vader says he's done, he's retiring. But you can't replace James Earl Jones. So who's going to replace him? James Earl Jones. We'll talk about that. We'll, we'll explain that one. Do you remember, uh, what was it, uh, a few weeks ago? Yeah, you, you did the audition on the I, air I, live? I yeah. did it, and I, it's not going to be me. I didn't get the part. <laughs> you know, I tried. It's like, it's 
got a great agent. But <laughs> yeah. They just right at the cutoff. Yeah, the there. trick is to sound like you have like really bad asthma, mm-hmm. and then try to exhale on that. Yeah, that's the trick. Okay, I didn't succeed. <laughs> right now, though, the January sixth committee is getting ready for its next public hearing. It'll be Wednesday and will come as staff council prepare to produce an interim report of its findings before the midterm elections. Mark Sandalo is a political analyst with the University of California Center in Washington, D.C. Mark, thanks for being with us. What do we expect them to do, say, whatever? We don't know. And I know that's a bit of a, a vague answer. I'm still stumped on the Darth Vader. I mean, I guess I was told I had a, <laughs> a, a, a face for radio and sometimes a voice for newspapers, which doesn't <laughs> fill me with confidence. But, uh, uh, um, I, I mean, they, they've been very secretive about what this last hearing will be. We, we think it's the last hearing. We don't even know this. Here's what the committee folks know is that there's an election coming up. This is Congress's last week in session before the midterm elections. It's, it's six weeks away, but they all want to get home to run for re-election. Uh, members of this committee are keenly aware that Republicans may well take over the House in the next election. They would be sworn in in January, but that basically means this committee is only in, in existence for another couple of months, and they know that. So at this hearing, I mean, for, you know, they have sweeping evidence. They have new film footage. We don't exactly know what it is. There are a few details, maybe some film footage of Roger Stone, who was a, a buddy of Trump's behind the scene. But they're going to continue to present this case that, that Donald Trump knowingly, knowing he lost the election, tried to pressure people from his own vice president to election officials around the country to illegally take that election away from Joe Biden, and that he was responsible for that mob that attacked the Capitol, which ended up in a number of people dead. So that's going to be the general theme. The specifics are telling us we have to wait till Wednesday to see. They do want to talk to Jenny Thomas, a wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, about you know her efforts, her conversations about you know, overturning the election. But that timeline doesn't match up with this either, so... No, and, you know, she, I mean, the, the, there have been reports that she asked people to, you know, find the votes. I mean, this is where the ambiguity is. I mean, uh, we, Donald Trump is on tape asking the Secretary of State in Georgia to find him the votes he needs to win the election. Now, now, I mean, that could be, I mean, some people say case closed. That's that's illegal. And indeed, if what Donald Trump was saying to that guy was, I don't care if they're illegal or not, you find me some justification that we can claim we won. Well, that's election fraud. And it's clearly against the law. Um, you know, on the other hand, you know, if, if, if you're the Dodgers manager and you say, you know, to your uh, batters before the ninth inning, you know, find me three runs. We're going to win this game. Well, that's not, you know, that's what Trump was talking about. Now, that's a pretty innocent explanation of what Trump did. But this is why it's going to be very tough, because ultimately this committee is likely to refer charges to the Justice Department. All right, but, this but, committee but is, let me ask you this, Mark. I, yeah. I mean, because you know very well, and we, we've all talked about this in the past few months. I mean, this was a committee that was really designed for television. They even hired a, a, an ex-network uh, TV uh, executive producer, yep. right, to produce it. So if you're producing this, which they have been, as a big TV series, in effect, then this is the last episode of the season, and maybe the last episode, the finale of the entire thing. Don't they have to then end with, in a big way? It may be. Um, I mean, the, the great thing about Congress, for example, this week they have a deadline of passing the federal budget. They have to do it by the end of September. That's Friday. But, uh, you know, 
they have a good way if they can't if they can't make a deadline they extend the deadline and they can do that with this even though the republicans will shut this committee down uh don't forget after the election they still have november and december if they want to come back with more public hearings to sum this up if they want to they can but of course there's a political element to this and while their final report might not come out for a couple months you got to believe they want to do all they can on television, like you suggest, before the midterm elections. And it may be that the voters of Los Angeles, uh, who tend to trend pretty far Democratic, it's not really going to matter in many of those races. There are an awful lot of places around the country where Democrats are convinced that if people are mad enough at Republicans for trying to steal election, they will vote against them in November. So, yes, I do think there will be some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of summary. Um but you know this is not this is not uh, this is not te- this is not a television docudrama. You know this is based in fact, and there are limits as to what they're going to be able to do. They've been very very uh, secretive about all. They were all on the Sunday shows this weekend, being asked the members. So what is it you're going to show us? And they all said, you know, wait and watch. That either means they've got something great for us. Or like any television <laughs> producer would do, they just want the suspense to build. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's the trailer and no one knows all, what's actually yeah. happening on the show. All hype. Mark Sandalo, University of California Center there in Washington, D.C. Coming up, people say they want electric cars with a long range, but is it worth it for car makers when people hardly drive that far? And James Earl Jones, he's done, finished, being the voice of Darth Vader. He's being replaced by himself. We'll explain. Doesn't sound like much of a retirement. No, it doesn't, does it? <laughs> we'll figure it out. But why do I think he's going to still make a lot more money? Uh, oh, it's strange. Yeah. Right now, the governor vetoed a bill that would have made kindergarten mandatory in the state, saying in his veto message it was uh, too expensive, $268 million each year. Patricia Lozano, executive director of Early Edge California, which works on expanding early learning programs for young children with us now. Patricia, thanks for being here. So your response to the governor's response to the legislatures, which was, hey, You've sent me a lot of bills that are very expensive this year, and this one is not going to make it. Yes. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Um, yeah, we were, you know, disappointed by the veto, but also see it as an opportunity to come together and continue to work hard to motivate parents to enroll their kids in kindergarten. So we saw a huge decline during COVID, and um, you know, but it doesn't mean that we. We should we should keep going and um, hopefully parents will feel more comfortable and will take their kids to kindergarten and, um, you know, really understand the importance of, of this time and how they, you know, attendance and enrollment is key. But help me understand this, Patricia. I mean, we're a state that at the moment anyway is swimming in money. In, in fact, polit- the politicians all over the, the map have been saying for the past few months how much we have and we have all these initiatives and programs uh, but we can't find $268 million, which for California is kind of a drop in the bucket for kindergarten, for kids, really? Yeah, it's hard to understand, but I do know that there are some, you know, that there's so many competing, you know, things happening. And, um, you know, we we are uh, $4 billion below budget projections, so the cost concerns are real. Um, possible recession looming. Yes. I mean, it's hard and it's sad, but I do understand that, that there are some like financial um, tough decisions to be made, but it doesn't mean that 
the governor is not a champion for kids. I think he's done a lot, like just with the free pre-K for all that is coming up for for all for you all. So I think it's just to, for us to continue to really emphasize the importance of these early years. The big drop off you mentioned, do you think that was primarily a COVID thing? And maybe that's going to come back to a, a certain level that, that was there before that yeah. now gets into things like a cost issue? That's I, our hope. I know before COVID, the enrollment numbers in kinder were were good, right? And um, but COVID really, really has had an impact, especially for low income communities, right, where parents had to go to work, right, and didn't um, have anyone to do, you know, long, you know, online school, right. So, I think that now is the time to hopefully uh, make parents feel comfortable again and the importance of in-person right that it is so so many things happening in the brain of a five-year-old that it, you know even though they're little it's a lot happening there so <laughs> they need to be around kids they need to be learning playing because it's not only like you know academics but also what we call social emotional right making friends waiting you know for their turns sure so, but uh, let me let me circle back with you though patricia about uh because you were saying that it's important that we sort of use this opportunity and reemphasize or emphasize the importance of these early years. But but I go back then to the money. I mean, what better way would there have been to emphasize the importance of those years than to have the state cough up the money that it does have uh, for things like mandatory kindergarten education for children? Wouldn't that have been right. the best way to, to, to prove that this is an important thing? Um, yes, but, you know, I also understand that there are other many competing, you know, things happening. You're a, and you're a very understanding person. <laughs> you're very understanding. <laughs> yeah, um, because there are, have been other investments. If it, if this was, you know, the only thing, I would say yes, right? It's like how, I mean, but the governor has invested in free pre-K, bilingual programs, child care. You know, we have now a union for child care providers. So, you know, if you see the big picture, of course, we want everything. But I mean, it is there is a cost, and now it's hard. I mean, I, I, I imagine it was a hard decision for sure, knowing that he's a champion for kids. Patricia Lozano, Executive Director, Early Edge, California. This is KNX in depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. LinkedIn lets people connect with others online in their career field, build relationships, maybe advance themselves. It ran a study on more than 20 million users that is now getting some criticism. Yeah, the goal was to improve the platform, but a tweak of an algorithm may have impacted people's abilities to find and improve their jobs without them even knowing what was happening. Art Shake is the founder and CEO of CircleIt. He's a data privacy and security advocate. Art, thanks for being with us. So briefly explain to us, how is it that LinkedIn, which a lot of people go to to try to get jobs, may have actually not helped them get jobs? Yes, uh, happy to be here. And uh, thank you for the question. Uh, I, I will tell you, I mean, I'm, I've been a longtime user of LinkedIn myself. So when the study came out, uh, I, I was very much concerned by the fact that this was done without the knowledge to the audience that was being used as experiments in this in, in this study. And at the same time, the cost of to them has been as the lost opportunity around jobs because there is element of bias around frequency and how many times you log into LinkedIn and all, and that creates downstream ethical issues. 
So basically, they were running some tests in different ways on like what kind of connections could lead you to new employment, right? And not everybody knew that they were in a certain category as opposed to some other people being in others. And and so maybe if you were really using LinkedIn to look for a job and you've got filtered off into one of these, you know, test subject categories, then if I'm not told, then I could be affected because maybe I didn't get that job that somebody else got. Yeah. It's as algorithm deciding uh, what's really who who gets the job, who gets the right opportunities in front of them versus level playing field, playing field. And that's what my my, my chat issue with this entire social dilemma is the algorithms and and with businesses deciding who gets jobs and who doesn't. But one of the interesting things I thought anyway out of this study was a, a seeming um, contradiction, right, that uh, on the one hand, one would have expected people with the most number of contacts in their field, for example, to end up with the most job offers, but it turned out to be the exact opposite. Yeah, and uh, so so that, that that's number one. But uh, what we don't know is at the same time is how did they use the existing audience sample of the ones that I'm deeply connected with? So if you think about it, anytime that somebody wants to look for a job and all, they are reaching out to their own own audience and groups and if those audience are not seeing things from you they obviously can't really help you so there is things in this that obviously i don't have all the details from linkedin on that on how the study was done so the when i'm looking at it from the outside i'm looking at it that there is a lot of issues you can make any study go in a certain direction but uh, uh, from the surface of it, it seems like, I mean, uh, people that don't know you and you're putting out jobs, it's just the numbers game. The more people you're connected with, I guess that in- increases your probability to get out. Yeah, they were they were testing the, the theory that it's not your strongest ties that can lead you to a job, but it's maybe people that you kind of know, casual acquaintances. The strength of weak ties is the is the quote. Do you think it would have been different if they had asked people first, like, hey, we want to run this study and we want to test this theory? Are you game for it? Are you open to it? And then you can click yes or no. Or do you want the old thing? I'm 100% aligned with what you, what you, what you just said, right? Like every business should be transparent to its customer. So what LinkedIn is losing here is, is actually trust. So whatever good comes out of that particular study, that's after afterthought. The first thing is, if you can breach my trust today, what can you do tomorrow? When you turn me, continuously turn me into a product. Okay, so are, so, you, are you going to now quit? LinkedIn, or are you going to stay with it? So as a matter of fact, on, on, on LinkedIn, and, and I have a presence on LinkedIn, but that does not mean that I'm going to quit tomorrow. But at the same particular point, until a viable solution that is out there that respects my particular privacy, that's similarly to what my technology is today. I'm building something that is going to rival what Facebook is because of all the merest practice around privacy and all over the last year and a half my technology has grown 5.2 million times by that many users which i never thought it would but it's giving people the the, the trusted technology which they can trust that you're not going to be turned into products so it only time will tell i mean linkedin is since it got acquired by microsoft if you actually see more spams comes to me i mean i hardly log in to LinkedIn as a C founder and CEO every single time that in network and whatever they call that in mail, it's one junk after another. So uh, as an executive long-term, I don't think it's a viable solution for them. That's Art Shake, founder and CEO of Circle It. But isn't that what the internet is about? Mike? Junk. Well, yeah. One junk after another. <laughs> yes. right? I mean, that's kind of what it is. We are the products. <laughs>
You know, the vast majority of trips in a car often last maybe 30 miles less. Now, that seems ideal for someone with an electric car, but a new Bloomberg survey finds two-thirds of people say an EV with a range of 300 miles or more would be adequate to suit their needs. Just about 10% would settle for 200 or less, but the longer ranges mean bigger batteries, more expensive cars. Larry Prince is with us, executive editor. The DetroitBureau.com covers the automotive world. Larry, thanks for being here. So is this a funny thing about range anxiety? Because we hear about this all the time. People don't want to buy an electric because they think it can't get me to where I need to go. But really, we asked this before. How often do you really need to drive 300 miles in one swoop? Not too often. Um, The best way to think about this is look at your own travel record and see where you've been the last month or two and think about where you've traveled and how far you have. Because the reality is you haven't driven 300 miles in a single swoop. Um, Most days you're traveling 30 miles or less. This is a a government statistic, actually, um, from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. And the reality is that's all people do drive in a day. And, And if you don't think that you drive, 30 miles track it because odds are you're not even driving 30 miles do you think do you think that what it is is it's just kind of a rationalization because people are just resisting change and so they're coming up with excuses and they go well you know i can't go 300 miles every day in an easy <laughs> and you know and of course they can't but well that's part of it i mean part of the reality is that automakers have had let us become accustomed to 300 miles. Because if you look at your average internal combustion engine, um, even a high-performance car, you're talking 300, 350 miles of range minimum. But that's pretty much an average, and that's what consumers are used to. So that's what they want in their EV as well, even though the reality is that if they had an EV with 200 miles, especially because it's probably a second or third car most likely, they could more than live with that. Although there are caveats. If you live in a particularly cold climate, I lived in Vermont for four years, and I'm here to tell you cold weather, snow tires, studded snow tires will reduce your range by about 30% right off the bat um, for most vehicles. Um, Some high-end electric cars do have um, thermal heaters so that as they're charging, they will keep the battery warm because batteries are like people. They don't like it too hot or too cold. And it will also warm the interior. But by and large, most car electric cars right now will lose about 20 or 30 percent in really cold weather. And that's something to keep in mind, given that this is a story reported by the L.A. Times on a Cox Automotive study. Cox Automotive is headquartered in Atlanta, not Vermont. If they were headquartered. In- <laughs> but the reality is that even being in Vermont, you'd be surprised how many people embrace electric cars despite the lowered range that they experience in wintertime. Is it range anxiety or is it charge anxiety? Like, I know there's a gas station within a few miles of wherever I am, so if I need gas, if I want to top off the tank, sure, I can go do that. But until I really map things out, like, if I'm new to this, I don't know where my chargers are. And even if I don't need to charge every day, maybe I feel like it's better to have that option. I feel safer that way. One of the things that automakers are doing with their navigation systems in electric vehicles is that It will plot a route considering how much charge is left and will note where the electric charges are. But certainly your charge anxiety is is more apropos than range anxiety because once you're in an electric car for a week or two, you you more than get over the range anxiety. You you learn how far you can go. The problem is how many of electric vehicle users, and they're out there listening right now, 
how many of them have gone up to electric charger only to find they don't work? And that's a real problem is that the charging networks are not being well maintained. I personally have run across this. Um, I live in an area where I have a total charger desert and I live in an apartment building without chargers. So it can be really, it can be difficult. It's a bit more challenging, but it can be done. It's not impossible. So, you know, there are all these these grandiose plans that different states, California in particular, have about, you know, transitioning to, to uh, electric vehicles in 15 years, 20 years. But considering all the things that we've just now talked about, range anxiety, real or not, it's still there. Uh, charging anxiety, real. Uh, and then the third, you know, uh, issue about uh, even if you find a charging station, it may not work. Are any of these goals even halfway realistic? I would say no. Um, I'm, you know, it's idealistic, but I think you're seeing a lot of manufacturers who are saying, "Well, we're going to meet this goal if the market's ready." There's, there's sort of, they're starting to put in caveats, and I think even at the government level, it's very fairly easy for them. Well, conceivably, fairly easy for them to amend the law to give more time. And, and we've seen this over the years with um, different things that came out of CARB, with different regulations that came out of CARB, as well as different regulations that came out of the federal government, where they've had to adjust it because the ex- what we were expecting did not meet reality. And that's certainly the case here. It takes so much to put in an electric line to get the clearances and even just to raise the funds, who's going to pay for it? Because it's a very expensive thing to do. Um, all of this is going to take longer than we expect. Do you think people feel like they are being forced into these electric cars and they're just not quite ready for it yet? Or does that change when you know it's a few years ahead of time and GM says they're switching over and you need a new car and you're like, okay, well, I need a new car. I'm not keeping the old one. I'm going to have to buy an electric. There is a certain level of being forced to buy one because the manufacturers have to plan. You can't just switch the sort of car that you manufacture on a dime, especially when it's a totally different propulsion system, totally different assembly that's needed, and and just suppliers for that. So it's not something that any manufacturer can switch on a dime, and so they have to plan. And so the government's decree is going to become reality very quickly and a lot quicker than we think. It seems very far off, but it can take a manufacturer four years to design a car from scratch. Now, you're talking about new propulsion systems. It conceivably could be longer with a new platform and a range of vehicles that they're producing from that platform. So it's, you know, you may say, well, 2030 is a long way off. Not if you're an auto manufacturer, because they're starting to look at that within the next year or two. Oh, and isn't it also beyond just the issue of of making the cars and having the charging stations? There's also the issue of the power grids being able to support a whole bunch of people charging their cars. I mean, California, we're in a state where every time the temperature gets hot, we're told you may not have power, folks, between 4 and 9 p.m. How are we supposed to add millions of people driving around and recharging electric cars anytime in the near future? This has always been um, something that I found ironic, that you know, California is the one that's pushing um, electrification, and their own grid can't support what what they what it can handle now. I mean, this this is an electric grid that pulls in power from um, from other states when it's needed. Um, the the actual infrastructure is a century old, 
and all you have is legislators going plug in, plug in, plug in, plug in, and there doesn't seem to be much reaction at the other end as to, okay, we should build some more electric infrastructure. And and if it is time to build more infrastructure, um, what are the hurdles that have to be overcome just to build it? Um, environmental, regular, you know, um, local neighborhoods, not in my backyard. There are all kinds of issues that arise the minute you want to build something, and it takes a long time. That's the biggest impediment to getting to the electrified future that we all would like, and that's the infrastructure and getting it built quickly enough. Larry Prince, executive editor, the Detroit Bureau.com. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Italy is getting a new government that will be led by a far-right party that is said to have neo-fascist roots. Yeah, it's the country's first far-right-led government since World War II when Mussolini ran things. So how did this come to happen? With us is Nick Locker, research assistant for the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security, and he focuses on European political and security affairs. Nick, thanks for being with us. So this is a uh, a rather shocking development in many ways, at least to people outside of Italy, I suppose, that, as I said, since World War II, this is the first time that Italy, and I think probably if I'm not uh, wrong about this, any Western European country is going to be apparently led by a very far right leaning government. Yes, thanks for having me. And you're correct. It is it is the first time that Italy will be led by the far right since World War II. Um, as you mentioned, the, the incoming government after this weekend's election is likely to be led by the Brothers of Italy, uh, led by Georgia Maloney, who will be the first prime, female prime minister of Italy. And um, having obtained uh, 44% of the vote overall, the, the uh, right-wing right wing alliance in Italy is set to govern without any, uh, without needing any support from the political opposition. And this is really represents a um, concerning development um, that, that could have pretty serious implications both for, for Italy domestically as well as the, the uh, European Union more broadly. Maloney spent a lot of time saying, okay, guys, I'm not a fascist. I had some beliefs in the past. Things are different now. Do the people of Italy believe that and the outside world is more concerned than they are? Or what's what's the mix here? You know, I think I think it really depends. I, I, I would say that that there is a, a substantial contingent of people uh, within Italy who are who are concerned about this this new government. I mean, there was uh, the, the left. Uh, the center left did receive around 25 percent of the vote it's, uh, itself. And. Uh, that, that being said, you know, I, I think I think there are there are a large number of voters in Italy who are dissatisfied with the status quo represented by the, the outgoing government led by Mario Draghi. And um, I, I would say, you know, the brothers of Italy really, um, by remaining in opposition, uh, uh, being one of the only only parties to remain in opposition in uh, against the previous government. Uh, made it it's made itself really into the most credible outlet for the substantial number of Italian voters who are really dissatisfied with the status quo um, after after uh, some serious issues in the country over the past few years, including a, a stagnant economy. So let's look at it in another way, if we can, uh, Nick, because one way to look at this is a in a micro way, which is what's happening in Italy, right? 
And another way to look at it is in a more expansive way, because there's something very troubling happening in the world, is there not? I mean, you've got this situation in Italy with a neo-fascist party, or, or at least a party that had its roots in neo-fascism, now leading it for the first time since World War II. You've had a notable tilt to the right in Sweden, of all places. The British government is now being headed by a fairly rightist prime minister. And in this country, our own country, we have one of the two main political parties that has a faction that is clearly anti-democratic. If you kind of connect all this dot, all these dots, where are we at? You know, I, I think I think it's a good point that there there are some um, worrying developments on, on a broader sense as well. If you if you look at countries uh, in the West and, and around the world, you know that that being said, I, I think it still it still remains to be seen to, to what extent this new government in Italy will represent a decisive illiberal turn for the country. I, I think, I think that, um, that if you, if you look, you know, if you look at the, the past positions of the constituent parties of the new coalition, there, there are some concerns that, that, um, that they, that they could look to implement policies that are, uh, uh, potentially, uh, going to undermine the, the, liberal system of government governance in Italy, as well as uh, support for the, the European Union and, and potentially the, the broader Western, uh, Western um, uh, a NATO alliance. However, I, I think that at the same time, this, the Italy is, is going, through, um, going through a serious economic and energy crisis um, uh, made worse by the, the war in Ukraine. And will remain quite dependent on um, on its international partners, specifically Brussels, to to help it recover from this crisis. So there there may be a bit of a, a gap going forward between the the um, the positions of 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 the government in theory and what they actually pursue policy wise while in government. Nick Locker, Center for uh, New American Security. Okay, so uh, what's the most recognizable voice in a movie or television show that you've ever heard? time up uh you know <laughs> we're not gonna wait too long uh it's one that could uh you could not just mistake for any other voice you just couldn't yeah it's got to be darth vader right gotta be, Nin- to be. 91 year old james earl jones is the voice and he's gonna step away from the iconic character and uh he's gonna be replaced by himself so well, that's a good that's a neat trick yeah i know right how'd they do it with us is uh, Josh Licht, the writer for TheForce.net. It's a Star Wars news website. Josh, thanks for being here. So some people you just can't replace because the role is too iconic, right? So what are they doing here? Well, hey, guys, thanks for having me on. It's really an interesting process that Lucasfilm has gotten to this point where they're actually able to use uh, lots of archived content, and not just from the Star Wars films as we know them, but from other voice work that James Earl Jones has done. And they run it through a process called Respeecher, which is actually a a Ukrainian startup that created this AI software that takes all of these past performances of James Earl Jones and creates a a program where they can have Darth Vader say whatever they want him to say for future projects. So Darth Vader may in the future say, this is CNN? (laughs) I mean, he could. (laughs) Uh, It's quite an interesting thing. So why not, though, I mean, you know, look, people are, are smart. They know that this is a 40-watt, 45-year-old franchise, and and new people come along, and actors are replaced all the time in often very iconic 
roles. Why not just sort of say to, to James Earl Jones, you did a great job for 45 years, made a lot of money, um, and thanks, and find somebody new? Well, I think part of it is they're still trying to tell stories that take place during the same timeline as the original films. And so to have Darth Vader's voice change a little bit could be distracting, not to mention nobody does it like James Earl Jones. And so this is a way for them to be able to kind of continue with that iconic voice as they want to bring uh, probably the most notorious villain of all time. Uh, they want to bring him into future Star Wars streaming projects and, and perhaps even films. And so this is a way for them to do that and kind of remain authentic. And I think the key here is to see that James Gerald Jones has signed off on this himself. Have they done so it he, already without people noticing? So it's been pretty much speculated that that's something that they definitely played around with in the Obi-Wan Kenobi series that just recently aired on Disney+. Plus. But they've used this same technology in the past for The Mandalorian. They actually had Mark Hamill using this same technology to make his voice sound younger so he could appear as his younger self in the Book of Boba Fett and in The Mandalorian. So this isn't like a, a brand new thing for Lucasfilm, but this does seem to be the direction that they're heading in. I mean, is it good enough that the average person would not be able to detect a difference? Well, you know, so much of Darth Vader is not just the voice, but it's the performance. It's the way that the lines are delivered. And that's one thing with this AI that they're able to replicate some of the pauses and some of the mannerisms that James Earl Jones brings to his performance of Darth Vader. There's so much that goes into Darth Vader. The late, great Dave Prowse was the body of Darth Vader, the costume design and everything else. And then that iconic voice. Uh, but if it's off a little bit, you know, and we've seen this in other Star Wars, like video games and projects where someone else was used for the voice and it just didn't ring authentic. So this is them trying to avoid that for future projects. What's the backstory about how how they decided on on this or did they just hear him somewhere? Because <laughs> because David Prowse, he thought I mean, he did all the lines. Did he think he was going to be the voice of Darth Vader, that he was going to go and record all this afterwards? And then they eventually told him, uh, no, we've got someone else. No, I mean, I think um, in, in the, you're talking about in the case of these video game projects. No, things. I mean, way back, like 77, because he there's old oh. footage of him, like, you know, delivering the lines, talking to Princess Leia through the mask. And it sounds terrible. Did did they just tell him right at the beginning? Like, you're just the body because you happen to be like seven feet tall. Yeah, <laughs> That's why we Dave need you. Rouse. They actually gave uh, Dave the choice between playing Dave, Darth Vader or playing Chewbacca. And he ended up choosing <laughs> uh, to play. Uh, Darth Vader, which I think worked out great for everyone else. And uh, the late, great Dave Prowse uh, actually was delivering all those lines with his tight British accent on the set. And I don't think that George Lucas had really fully decided on James Earl Jones or anyone as the voice of Darth Vader until after a lot of the film was already completed. And so they actually went back and a lot of James Earl Jones performance was actually ADR performance on the stuff that Dave Prowse had shot on set. Um, but, of course, after that first film, uh, then he was much more involved in the day-to-day -day process. There raises a sort of intriguing question, I, and I don't know if you know the answer to this or not, but I wonder, with this technology, who actually then owns the actor's voice, the actor or the company now that can synthesize it? 
I do think that that is uh, something that's going to create some new case law in these uh, yeah. contracts. But from what I understand, part of the reason that this is coming out right now is that James Earl Jones has signed over his voice rights to Lucasfilm. So now they do have those rights to uh, use them however they want. That's something that actors had to do back in 77 uh, with their um, appearance rights. So, you know, Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher, they had to sign over their likeness to George Lucas. And so, uh, you know, Carrie Fisher, before she passed away, used to make lots of jokes about how uh, George could print her face on anything he wanted to because she signed a piece of paper in 1977. Uh, I think now this is going to become something that actors will think about when they sign on to movie or television roles. Uh, am I also signing away my rights or my likeness or my voice for future productions after I'm gone? Is this something my estate will uh, have to handle? But my understanding is James Earl Jones has now signed over those rights to Lucasfilm as part of this agreement. Josh Licks, writer for TheForce.net, Star Wars news website. I think I'm going to sign over my voice rights to like a chicken franchise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can do the drive-thru. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. More in-depth tomorrow. We'll be back at 1 p.m.